one of the uh, really important things about the Christian faith is that it is not just for all people, it's also about all people. It's for all people in the sense that we looked at last week. Uh, that is, uh, Jesus is the one given all authority in heaven and on earth and as that all authority one, he sent his disciples to make disciples for him from all nations. Every single person in every single social and ethnic and cultural context, all nations, tribes, peoples and languages, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded. And his promise is that he's with us always right through to the end of the age as we do that. Christianity is for all people in that sense. But Christianity is also about all people. The God and Father of Jesus Christ is the maker and sustainer of all things, not just Christian things. Of all people, not just Christian people. Christianity is not a little tribal religion that says that there's a God and he's interested in us and he's blessing us and he's, he's looking after us. No, Christianity is about all people. And perhaps the most foundational way that that's put in the Bible is to say that all people, men, women, African, Asian, Anglo, Indian, or anything at all, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, and nons, nons, that's the greatest, you know, fastest growing new religion, nons, every single one of us bears the image of our creator. Every single one of us is made in his likeness. And there are two crucial things to see about this, this image-bearing reality for human beings. The first is that the image of God in human beings is smeared but not shattered by the fall into sin. Uh, Genesis chapter 9, after the fall, makes it crystal clear that murder is not okay specifically because the person you might murder is someone who's made in the image of God. All the dignity, all the worth, all the honour that belongs to the image of God continues to belong to all people after the fall. Every person you pass on the street this week, every person you see in the shops, every person you connect with at work or uni or school, every email or text or tweet to or about your neighbours or your enemies or your neighbour who is your enemy, every one of them, every one of them, is an image bearer and you better remember that. And the second thing to see about this is that part of what it means to bear the image of God for all people is to be dignified with responsibility. Genesis chapter 1 speaks of both the man and the woman having joint responsibility to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. The fundamental human activity is, you see, to function in both private and in public life for both men and women and in Genesis 2 this public life is described in terms of tilling and keeping the earth notice this beautiful balance between tilling and keeping till means change it don't leave it the way it was actually the best translation of that word is cultivate it from which we get our word culture make culture keep means preserve, don't change. A and it's not one or the other, it's both. Till and keep. Keep and till. In other words, part of this fundamental human activity, the public part, is to turn natural things into cultural things. To turn wood into houses and cricket bats and flutes and toothpicks, as well as paper on which to write poems and laws and histories. 
That's part of our job as image bearers for everyone. And at the same time, to preserve the forests so that there's enough wood for future houses and cricket bats and flutes and toothpicks and paper and homes for kookaburras and termites as well. Till and keep. Keep and till. One final thing by way of introduction. Culture, in its broader sense, is what we've looked at here. The mandate that we have from God to bear his image and likeness as creative cultivators. Or in author Andy Crouch's phrase, to make something of the world. And and that's what you do. That's what everyone does every day of their life, whether it's the really important things for human society, like getting rid of the garbage. You know, you know the garbage collectors, single most important public health fact figures in the whole of our society, except perhaps the sewerage guys. The sewerage, you don't even want to know what happens if the sewerage doesn't work. Okay, Sewerage and garbage, they're the really important ones. Nurses, they're maybe the next... The, uh, most. Actually, we don't need a hierarchy, do we? Just... The whole society functions together to do what it is that God has called us and given us to do as human beings, all of us. And each in our different ways, whether it's you as a, as a garbage collector or you as an artist or you as a lawyer or you as a, a, a copywriter, or what, whatever it might be, you as a student learning and growing and understanding, you as a mum raising children, having children. All of it is doing this image-bearing thing. And of course, the truth is that every human society has done that in different ways with different norms and values and stories and presuppositions. And, and although the word culture properly refers to that big mandate that we have, it, it, the fact that each society does it in different ways is what we call our, use the word culture for normally, like traditional culture or modern Western culture. And so here's the point. When Christians are redeemed, when people are redeemed, they don't stop being creatures. It, it sounds obvious, maybe even dopey to say it, but it's actually crucial. When people are redeemed, when the living and loving Lord of grace grabs a hold of you, he doesn't undo what he did in making you in the first place. He fulfills it. Or at least he begins to fulfill it and he will finish the job in due course. Redemption is not the extraction of you from creation. From the reality of being a creature made in the image of God, dignified with creative culture-making responsibilities. Rather, it is the restoration of and Holy Spirit empowering of you to be that image-bearing glory of God. God doesn't redeem us to extract us from the world into a holy huddle. And He doesn't redeem us uh, even merely to send us back into the world as little evangelistic redemption machines, as though that's the only thing on our agenda. Stay alive and keep evangelizing. Now, of course, that's part of our agenda as we looked at last week. But it's not the whole of our agenda. Because redemption is the redemption of creation, not redemption out of creation. It's the redemption of creatures precisely to be the creative, culture-making, image bearers that we were made to be in the first place. Now, of course, it's complicated. To use a totally inadequate word, it's complicated by the fact that something is broken with everything. Sin has messed up the world in profoundly deep ways, including in the core coding of cultures. 
And so part of what being redeemed creatures means is to undo the effects of sin in ourselves and all around us, as well as creatively to cultivate and keep the earth. Or as we put it in this second value, which speaks of our stance in regard to the world around us. Remember the first two were our stance towards Jesus, full devotion and we serve. That's our deal. That's how our heart is oriented towards Jesus. In relation to the world, we're culturally literate and we're culturally engaged. We promote the good and we oppose the evil in human cultures. Right here on the ground, in your workplaces, in your schools, in your communities, amongst your friendship networks, on your Facebook page. We promote the good and oppose the evil because sin, though it infects all our works, does not obliterate the image of God from humanity nor defeat his continuing works of common grace. And so as we dig into this creational value to match the redemption value of last week, we're going to look at it under three headings. Firstly, what does sin do to culture? Secondly, what does grace do to culture? And then thirdly, how should we engage with culture? So first thing, what does sin do to culture? Our starting point from that long and windy introduction uh, was that human beings are culture makers because we're like God. He himself is a creative culture maker. Uh, did you notice uh, in the first chapters of Genesis that what God made was a garden? Gardens are different from wilderness. You ever, ever thought about that? Gardens are different from wilderness because they have order and structure. That's culture. God is a culture maker. And as image bearers, that's what we're to be. But as I say, sin infects everything. And we see this symbolically expressed early on in Genesis. Immediately after the fall into sin and expulsion from the garden, we see the ripple effects of God being displaced from the center of human life. Cain kills Abel. There's a capacity that Cain has, strength, the ability to change things, and it's used in violence and destruction. He kills Abel in the jealousy and resentment of his rejected and Abel's accepted offering to the Lord. And, and what happens next is fascinating. The descendants of Cain, the murderer, are described and culminate five generations down the line in Lamech, the mass murderer. Um, his boast to his two wives is how much of a maniac he is. Uh, don't, don't try this if you're, if you're you know, dating someone. Okay? Lamech said to his wives, Adar and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, 77-fold. guy's a maniac and of course why does he tell his wives that this is how he is except to intimidate them into passive terrified obedience the first instance of domestic abuse what we see here is sin running amok the power of human beings used to promote the evil and oppose the good and yet right at the same time right in the midst of this family from the pit we learn of three others, the first two brothers, creatively named Jabal and Jubal, and they walk a different path. Jabal, we learn, is the ancestor of those who live in tents and have livestock. In other words, he's the ancestor of the nomadic herding tribes. Uh, on the other hand, Jubal is the ancestor of those who play the lyre and the pipe. He, he's, he's an artist, musician. And at the same time, their half-brother, Tubal Cain, well, he's the one who makes all kind of bronze and iron tools. You know what they use bronze and iron tools for? 
What you have here is a proto-agricultural vision of life. Settled, not nomadic, in tents. Building houses. Tents. And what I think this is saying in a highly symbolic and structured way is this, that right in the midst of fallen and broken human cultures, there will always be good mixed in with evil. What is righteous and God-pleasing, right alongside what is dark and destructive, all mixed up together. And there's two very, very important implications for us. You see, on the one hand, it means that there, there is no culture that is purely good. There is no form of human life that remains unstained by the brokenness and evil of sin. And that means there's no basis for baptizing any one culture as Christian culture. And that affects the way we conceive of our role in the world. It's not to forge a Christian culture. It's not to forge a Christian nation. In fact, I'm not sure there is any such thing as a Christian culture or a Christian nation. This side of glory before the Lord returns, there's good mixed in the bad together. And we need to be both discerning and distancing seeing what's there to be seen and never giving our ultimate loyalty to any one culture or another, but only to the Lord. And at the same time, second, it also means that simply withdrawing from culture as though that were the only way to stay unspoilt and pure will never really be a live option for us either. Baptizing one culture? No. Or withdrawing from culture? No. Whatever culture, whenever uh, culture Christians have sought to create in their monasteries and nunneries, has always been, it's always been infected by sin, just like the worlds that they left. And at the same time, the worlds that they left have traces of what theologians call God's common grace in them, those elements of goodness and righteousness in them that God continues to work even in the midst of a fallen and broken and sick world. Because, you see, God doesn't withdraw. You notice that? God doesn't withdraw, even though he could pull off a genuinely safe and pure gated community if you really wanted to. Rather, as Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, God makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain, like today, all over Five Valley, on the righteous and on the unrighteous. He continues to work for the good and work against the evil. The good of plentiful harvests and lots of food the evil of starvation and death, right in the middle of broken human culture. Which leads to the second point. You see, that's how God works. That's exactly what we're called to do as well. So what does grace do to culture? Watching the gospel expand through the Roman world of the Mediterranean in the book of Acts is, is fantastic. So it's just a rollicking good ride, Acts. And on a couple of occasions we see a kind of a really interesting key point of intersection where the impact of the gospel is felt not just by individuals but also more broadly within the community. And one of those is Acts 16, which is read for us, uh, where for not especially noble reasons, uh, I don't know if you picked this up, namely Paul got really annoyed. That was it. He rebukes an evil spirit that had invaded a slave girl and enabled her uh, with the dark art of divination, that is, demonically discerned truths about people and their situations and he rebukes that spirit and sends it away now what's so interesting is the way that luke the author of acts is acutely aware of the different cultural power dynamics at work for the girl to be released from this evil spirit is redemption pure and simple it's awesome what happened i mean can you imagine how just 
gloriously great she feels after Paul is slightly annoyed at her. As it happens, though, we hear nothing further about her at all. We don't know what happens to her at all. She just disappears from the scene. And rather, the focus shifts to her owners and the economic benefit they used to derive from her dark powers, which has just suddenly gone up in smoke. They can't make money out of her anymore. And so they exact their revenge. They accuse Paul and Silas of disturbing the peace, of being really un-Australian, or at least being really un-Roman, which in a violent dictatorship is a very dangerous thing to be. You don't want to be un-Roman. They're flogged and thrown in jail, but their virtue is seen when despite the opportunity to escape, they don't. They stay in the jail, though the doors are open, right? And instead, they justify themselves to the city that they do not pose a threat. And the whole episode ends with this lovely kind of moment. The, the magistrates say, oh, sorry, we're really sorry. Please, we'll escort you out. And they shove them off. A little later in uh, Acts chapter 19, a similar incident takes place in the nearby town of Ephesus. And again, it's all about economics, as lots of cultures are about economics. So many people in Ephesus are becoming Christians through the efforts of Paul, and because they become Christians, are turning away from their religious practices of their former life, that the whole religious trinket industry, huge industry in Ephesus, totally central religious sort of town, the whole religious trinket industry is going down the gurgler. And the power brokers in that industry, in this case the silversmiths, who made good money from the silver idol market, they don't settle for a mere flogging. They stir up religious sentiment that always bubbles away beneath the surface of cultures and they turn it into a full-blown riot. It's, it's great to read. And as riots always do, it gets very nasty. Innocent bystanders are dragged into the eye of the storm and it's about to turn into a lynching. When one of the official makes it, officials makes it clear that if there's a problem, it should be dealt with by the proper means, the courts and the legal system, and Paul again is eventually allowed to go free. And what Luke is showing us in both Acts 16 and Acts 19 in these two incidents is this, showing us two things. On the one hand, what he's showing is that when Jesus redeems people, he doesn't just change their private lives. He doesn't just change their private lives, he changes their public lives too. And in the case of some of the small towns in the ancient Roman Empire, when enough people became Christians, that had genuine cultural impact. In the late 1950s, uh, Billy Graham came to Australia, the very famous American uh, mass evangelist, and particularly to Sydney and Melbourne. And especially, as I say, in Sydney and Melbourne, there was massive response. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people became Christians or woke up from being sleepy Christians. Now here's the thing. For a year or two after that, for the first time in the history of these colonies of criminals, right, that's what Sydney and Melbourne are, for the first time in the history of these colonies, the actual sale of alcohol decreased. The number of children born out of a married couple family decreased. Some areas of criminal behaviour decreased. It was astonishing. The impact of the gospel in the lives of people was genuine, although sadly short-lived, cultural change. And that's exactly what we see here in Acts. Which leads to the second thing that Luke's showing us. You see, he's making the case that there's nothing to fear in this. That's his point in writing this. There's nothing to be afraid in the, of this at least by ordinary people. Sure, there is disruption to some industries, whether that's the silver idol industry or the beer brewing industry. 
But that's not a big setback for culture. His narrative is designed to show that the Christian impact on culture as we work for the good and oppose the evil will, or at least can be, positive. Which leads to the third point. How do we engage? Well, Jesus is very aware of the culture impact of the kingdom of God in the lives of people. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, uh, he speaks about it in a way that gives us a beautiful vision of how we are to engage. He says that we're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now notice it's not the salt of the church and the light of the fellowship group. The scope of Jesus' vision is the whole earth, the wide world. And Christians are to very intentionally function in and for the earth and the world. Now salt and light are not accidental as the metaphors that Jesus uses. Salt preserves what is good from being corrupted by what is evil or at least from what is rancid and weeviled. Light shines and illuminates to make clear what the way forward is. Uh, English author John Stott suggests that these two things, light and salt, are two sides of the same coin to oppose what is evil in, uh, uh, in good preserving saltiness and to promote what is good by clean, clear lighting of the way. But either way, you see, the, the net effect is that in big ways and small, wh- whether, whether you get to be a kind of a grand changer of culture in an entire area of society or, or, or just an influence on one friend, we're to be people who promote the good and oppose the evil. In a few weeks, we will again run our holiday kids camp, base camp. Lots of kids come from families who otherwise have little or nothing to do with the church. And the coordinators of base camp know that the worst thing they could actually get me to do is to talk to kids. Uh, And so they put me on the registration table where I'm safe and sort of, you know, off to one side and I get to connect with the parents. And last year, one of those parents came up to me at Rego and was was kind of almost shaking his head as though he couldn't quite believe that he was going to say what he was about to say. He just, this is not a sentence that really comes easy to him. And he commented to me, This church is doing a great job. Now, I imagine that in other contexts, he shared the standard in a West view of Christianity in general and the church in particular. But because base camp is great fun for the kids and is a real help to parents and it's a genuinely safe space with all sorts of beautiful, positive moments, right? Promoting the good and opposing the evil he knew that something different was happening here. It was just a small moment of earth saltiness and micro-world lighting. I mentioned author Andy Crouch earlier. He's written a terrific book, really worth uh, looking this up if you get a chance. It's called Culture Making. And in it, um, he suggests these salt and light functions can be further understood in terms of what he calls posture and gesture. Okay, posture and gesture. Gestures are all the different and particular responses we make to the various aspects of culture around us. There are different gestures that you might make. There might be condemnation, as in a strident exposure of the evils of the pornography industry. There might be critique and curiosity, as, as in the analysis of a popular book or movie. There might be copying of culture, 
Uh, so, for example, the fact that uh, now in church we no longer use pipe organs, which of course is the God-given biblical form of uh, church music, not. And instead we play music that is, well, you could get this on Triple M, or does that still exist? I don't even know if that still exists. Spotify, thank you, thank you. See, you're still with it. You really, you really, Spotify. You could, I mean, you could basically hear the same kind of music in, 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 in the secular world as you do in church. Uh, and there might be consumption of culture. So there's, there's condemnation, there's critique and curiosity, there's copying, or there's consumption of culture, as in the purchase of clothes and fashion, so that no one buys jeans anymore that have wide legs. They all buy jeans like Matt Steele does, like skinny jeans. And, and who can get into those things anyway? You, you see how there are different gestures that you might make. And the point that Crouch is making with this is that it's important not to let gestures harden into a single posture so that the only way we relate to culture is with one unthinkingly same gesture, that that gesture becomes our standard posture. Uh, I have two friends who made comments to me recently. Ready? Capitalism is so evil. Feminism is so evil. I don't know which one of those you sort of identify with, perhaps. Maybe you sort of lean one way or the other way and it would uh, be interesting to see. You see, if, if you lean either way, what you've done is you've turned a gesture into a posture. They've taken a particular gesture, the gesture of condemnation of what they see as evil, and have flattened out their response to something as complex as an entire system for organising the production, distribution and consumption of goods and services, and an entire movement of civil and human rights about relations between male men and women, and just turn that gesture into a posture. And in doing that, both of my friends at this point, have become stooped over and rigid. We have just a, a, a woman at the 8 o'clock service at St. John's Ashfield, and she has, in fact, the worst posture I've ever seen in any person. It's just what happens when you get really old, and I can feel myself on the way. And she, she just is like this, and it just limits her range. She can't do much anymore. She's stooped. She, she's just... She can't do much. She only is really able to kind of do one type of thing. And so my friends have become stooped over. They've become rigid and unthinking and ultimately they've failed to be sufficiently discerning. Now, of course, it can work the other way as well to only critique and analyse, to always remain at a safe and ironic distance or, or maybe to always copy so that, again, without discernment, we baptise what is less, worthy, less than worthy of Jesus or perhaps worst of all, to just make consumption your posture so that you're no different to every standard mass-produced Australian around you. But instead, what Crouch suggests is that we need an agile posture. A bit like mine. Flexible and open and discerning so that we have the full range of gestures available to us. N uh, thank you. And nor is anyone videoing this. I just want to let you know that. And you'll never see it again. Which leads to the question, how are we going to get the spiritual strength and resources to be agile like that with really good posture, cultural posture, to be able to make the right gesture at the right time. Come back to that in a moment. 
What I'll do now is just to draw the threads together. And I want to ask you this question. And I found this question a really useful one to reflect on. Uh, think about this. Does God want anything else from non-Christian people alongside wanting them to become Christians? Okay, think about that for a second. Does God want anything from non-Christian people alongside wanting them to become Christians? Or is it is pretty much the only thing that God wants from non-Christians is to convert? And as for anything else, what they do in their lives, how they conduct themselves, what they say, how they spend their money, how they organize their time, what they do with their resources and capacities and gifts, what work they... He, he just doesn't care. He doesn't care. Because it doesn't matter. Does God want anything in the meantime while these people are on their way to becoming Christians? And of course, as soon as you ask the question like that, it's obvious, isn't it? God wills that all people should be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, absolutely. But God is at work also upholding the world, making rain to fall and sun to shine and feeding all things in due season. And in large part, the way he does that is through his human culture-making creations, both Christians and those who are not yet Christians. God is doing both of these works. Works of special grace in redemption, works of common grace in creation and preservation, and he calls us to join him in doing both as well. Both. Two things. But do you know what? Two things is way more complicated than one thing. You figured this out yet? Two things is not just twice as complicated, it's about a thousand times more complicated. It just goes, you know, exponential. One thing is easy. Easy to understand, easy to keep focus on, easy to feel good about. Two things, two things is complex. Because you've got to hold both at the same time. You've got to keep them in balance and tension when allocating scarce resources like time and money and headspace and energy. You've got to not trade them off against each other or bounce guiltily between them. Two things. Two things is just a whole lot more complex than one thing. And what we've seen over the last two weeks is that we are called to do two things in our stance towards the world, the culture around us. We're to be culturally literate in proclaiming Jesus Christ in ways that people can understand. That's massively important. And we're to be culturally engaged, promoting the good and opposing the evil we find around us. And that is massively important. And it's got to be both. Both. Not least because Jesus recognises and just identifies one of the ways of the many ways in which these two things are actually connected to each other, you see. Did you remember what Jesus says at the end of that little section on being salt and light? It's as people around us see the life of redeemed creatures lived out in salt and light, in opposing the evil and in promoting the good, that they will see those good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. It takes great strength, great strength to be both culturally literate and culturally engaged. It needs a deep renewal in our own lives as grace works more and more deeply in our hearts to, to keep turning us outward 
rather than allowing us to shrivel inward and become just self-absorbed wimpers. It takes a deep renewal, not just in our individual lives, but in our common life together as a church community as we work alongside one another in joining the living and true God in his works of special and of common grace. And those two things, individual renewal, corporate renewal, they're our next two values. That's why they're our next two values. We'll come to them next week. Because as we hear the word of Jesus, we know that part of what we do in this world is promote the good and oppose the evil in human cultures. Because sin, though it infects all our works, does not obliterate the image of God from humanity, nor defeat God's continuing works of common grace. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that you've called us to yourself and you send us to your world. We pray that you would strengthen us to be all that you've called and sent us to be. That you equip us with such wisdom as to be culturally literate and to proclaim the gospel well and such strength to be culturally engaged to stand with you in opposing the evil and promoting the good. We pray these things for your glory. Amen. I'm going to stand and sing a song which recognizes